We're going to continue our study on the attributes of God. I've been preaching every 10 weeks for the last like five or six times, looking at different attributes of God. We've seen that God is holy. And when we think about God's holiness, it means that he is utterly unique, that he's different, that he is a God that is transcendent. We've seen that God is love. And what it means that God is love, that his love is planned and purpose, that his love is unconditional, and that his love is sacrificial. We've seen that God is immutable, that he does not change, that though our circumstances change, though our relationships change, God is steadfast. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. We've seen that God is simple, that he is a God that is without parts. And lastly, we've seen that God is omnipotent. And it has been my prayer as I've been preaching through the attributes of God and studying the attributes of God, I've at times felt overwhelmed because as Danny said, it is something that is high and lofty thought. It is something that is so transcendent from us to contemplate who God is, to think through his attributes. And church, this has been my desire. I've been preaching through these, been studying this because Isaiah says in Isaiah 49, he says, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God, Behold, the Lord comes with might. And church, it has been my plea that you would behold your God. That you would behold your God. That you would see how magnificent he is. That you would see how splendid he is. And, and I want to caution, as you, caution you as you think about what it means to behold your God. To behold your God doesn't just simply mean that your mental faculties are engaged. It doesn't simply mean that you have high and lofty thoughts of who God is. What does it mean to behold your God? It means that all of who you are is beholding your God. It means your thoughts are high and lofty on who God is. But your heart, your affections are high and lofty on who God is. And that is what it means to love your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And so as we've been walking through the attributes of God, we've kind of taken a theological endeavor, if you will. We, we stopped and we studied theology, which theology is just the study of who God is. And it has been my prayer and my aim to try and connect that with our doxology. And doxology is our praise of God. It is our worship of God. And so it's been my prayer that we would take theology and doxology and we would unite those together. That we would look at scripture and study deeply contemplate deeply who this God is and that as we contemplate the greatness that magnificence of our God that it would produce in us a doxology a desire to praise him and church I'm encouraged that when we sing we take seriously praising God we're a church that can sing loudly but you know what as we think about praise praise is more than just our singing Romans 12 Paul says this I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is more than just the songs that we sing. It, it is a daily setting yourself on the altar, presenting yourself as a living sacrifice. And remember from Romans 1 through 11, he labors to show us the beauties of the gospel and all that God has done. And so in light of God saving us, what are we to do? How should we respond? We should respond in worship, in offering ourselves daily as a living sacrifice. And church, that has been my aim, to first and foremost say, church, behold your God. 
see how magnificent our God is. And in light of that, will you not offer yourself as a living sacrifice each and every day? Will you not worship him? But secondly, my prayer has been that the knowledge of God would break through your circumstances, that the knowledge of God would break through your emotions. I, I know you people, and I know a lot of you are suffering and going through hard times, whether that's sin because of out there or whether that's sin from inside. We have fear and anxiety. And my prayer is that the knowledge of God would pierce through, would break through your circumstances, your emotions, and it would bring peace, hope, joy, comfort. It would bring repentance and faith in God. And I just want to illustrate real quickly what this looks like. If you guys are not involved in our community groups, I would encourage you, get involved. We're going through the book of James, and James, one of the first commands is, count it all joy when you meet various trials. Church, how are we to count it joy? When my kid is suffering, when my relationship, my marriage is hard, when people around me are hurting and sick, when I, I've got palpitations for unknown reasons, right? When everything around me seems bleak and hopeless, when the government is being too authoritative in my life, how am I to count it joy in that moment? It is this, the knowledge of God breaks through your emotions. It breaks through your circumstance. And the reminder that God is a good and faithful father who loves you and in providence he is using that trial to make you more like his son. That knowledge, that truth ought to break through our emotions and bring a peace that surpasses all understanding. It ought to comfort our hearts and our minds. It ought to give us hope when things seem hopeless. It ought to cause us to repent of sin and put our greater faith in God who loves us. Church, it is the knowledge of the Holy One that we need. And so often, I know you're like this because this is how I am, right? You go through a series of trials, and what's the question that you ask? Why? Why does this have to happen? Of all the days, why does this have to happen right now? And we want answers as to why our suffering is coming about. But church, hear me. More than the question, why? And the answer to that question, what we need to be reminded of is this. More than knowing why this suffering has come about, why this has happened, what we need to know more than anything is that God is love. That God is holy. That God is unchanging. That God is all-powerful. You see, as we contemplate the attributes of God, when we read in Romans, if this God is for us, who can come against us? Does that not bring hope, confidence, courage? If this God who is love and holy and unchanging is for you, who can come against you? Church, today we'll look at two more attributes and we'll see how God is omniscient. And secondly, we'll see that God is omnipresent. And let's pray that as we study who God is, that first and foremost, the knowledge of Him would lead us to praise Him. 
And secondly, that the knowledge of him would break through our emotions, would break through our circumstances and bring about peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God that is gracious, that you are a God that is good. We thank you that you are a God who is love and unchanging. And I pray, Lord, that as we contemplate deeply your goodness and your faithfulness and your greatness, that it would cause our hearts to want to praise and to worship you. And Lord, not just in the songs that we sing, but each and every day, that we would see you far greater than anything and anyone that this life has to offer. And then in light of that reality, we would offer ourselves as a living sacrifice before you. And I pray, Father, that your goodness and greatness would pierce through our thoughts and our emotions and our circumstances and would bring peace that surpasses all the understanding. I pray, Father, that you would guide my words today and that you would help me to say the things that would honor you and help me to preach in such a way that it would build up your people I pray, Father, that you would be honored and glorified in our time, Lord. And we thank you so much for your son, Jesus, who suffered and died so that we might know you as a loving father. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So if you guys have your handouts, you can look at that. We're going to walk through four main things. And really, the, the message is going to be kind of cruxed on the first two points, which is God is omniscient, looking at verses 1 through 6. God is omnipresent, looking at 7 through 12. Number three, looking at how God creates in power, knowledge, and presence. And number four, how we should respond. So if you can, open up your Bibles to Psalm 139 or it's in your handouts. And as we think about Psalm 139, some commentators said that this is the crown of all the Psalms. And this is like the crowning jewel because it exalts God. It points out His omnipresence, His omniscience. And this song was a song, really, that was meant to be sung out loud. As we walk through this psalm, I want you to know something just kind of right up front. And it's this, how personal this psalm is. Just kind of glance down at verse 1. And notice the words, me, me. In verse 2, I, my thoughts in verse 2, my path, and my lying down. You see, what he does is he takes this idea that God is omniscient and God is omnipresent and he makes them personal. This is not some like high and lofty thoughts that, that have no application to our life. No, this is very real to David. This is very applicable to David. And I pray that as we walk through it, that it will be very real and applicable to us today. So Psalm 139 verses 1 through 6. Follow along as I read. Oh Lord... You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high I cannot attain it. These first six verses, they highlight God's omniscience. But what does that word mean, that God is omniscient? It's really a simple de definition of God's omniscience is this, that God is all-knowing. Omni meaning all, shit or science meaning knowledge. It is that God is all-knowing. 
But as we think a little bit more deeply, it means that God possesses all knowledge, that there is nothing new for God. There is no moment in God's life when he goes, oops, I didn't see that coming. I didn't know that. There's no time where God learns nothing new. In fact, if you think about this, there is nothing that God can learn. A.W. Tozer said this, God never discovers anything. He is never surprised. He is never amazed. He never wonders about anything, nor does he seek information or ask questions. In church, as we think about this, God not only knows the realities of what is to happen, he knows all the possibilities that could be. I mean, if you just think about that thought, it can blow your mind, right? Oftentimes we're faced with a decision. And if you're good and faithful and leading your family, you think through, okay, if I make this decision, I could foresee this happening. If I make that decision, I could foresee this happening. And we walk through all the possibilities that our finite minds can comprehend and wrap our minds around. Church, God knows the infinite possibilities and he knows the reality of what is to be. Church, our God has complete and total understanding. And not just understanding of the past. He's not just looking back and can see that clearly, but he has understanding of the present. And he has understanding of the complete future. And that is what Psalm 147.5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. In John 1.3 verse 20, it says that for whenever our, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, probably one of my favorites. It says this, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. For I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done that God is able to declare the end from the beginning. In church, he's able to declare the end from the beginning because he alone knows the end from the beginning. Is that not comforting? That our God has knowledge that is infinite? That our God has knowledge that's instantaneous? He knows everything at once? That our God has complete and comprehensive knowledge that he alone knows the end from the beginning? That thought alone is encouraging. But look back at Psalm 139 and see how David takes this idea that God knows all and he makes it personal. He says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. That means that God has dug deep in your heart, that God has probed in your heart and he knows you. And this knowledge is an experiential knowledge. It is a personal knowledge. God knows you intimately and personally. And look at verse 2. How comprehensive is God's knowledge of you? He says this, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. That is to say that God knows your actions. He knows your whereabouts. He knows when you're walking and where you're walking. He says, You discern my thoughts from afar. Notice that God not only knows your actions, but he knows your thoughts that motivate those actions. And more than just knowing your thoughts, he says, you discern my thoughts. You know which thoughts are good and which thoughts are evil. 
And more than just discerning my thoughts, you know my thoughts and you discern my thoughts from afar. That is to say that God knows your thoughts before you even have them. Before those thoughts come into your mind and you can discern them, God has already discerned them. Church, He knows you better than you know yourself. He says in verse 3, You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. He knows my doings. He knows my tendencies. He knows all of me and all of you. And he says this in verse 4, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. He knows our actions. He knows our thoughts. But even more than that, he knows our words. And David is reminding us that not only does he know our words, but he notices them, knows them before they are uttered from our mouth. That God sees our words before they're even spoken. And what's crazy about that is what does Jesus tell us about our words? Where do they come from? Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. If God, who knows all things, knows our words, what does that say about our hearts? God knows our hearts. And, and this is so encouraging as we think about Jeremiah 17:9. It says, The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know it? He answers, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Church, we are so often deceived by our thoughts. We are deceived by our words. We're deceived by our heart. But God knows them. And he knows them personally and intimately. He knows you so personally and intimately. Verse 5 says this, He hemmed me in behind and before. And lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. For it is high and I cannot attain it. Church, God's omniscience is a high thought. It is a lofty thought. That his knowledge is perfect and instant and comprehensive. And that his knowledge is personal. That he knows me. That he knows the deepest and darkest depths of my heart. That he knows me personally and intimately. That God knows me better than I know myself. And church, this thought is both comforting and convicting. It's comforting because... What do we do when we meet somebody? Oftentimes we want to kind of keep them at arm's length, right? We, we want to be honest. We want to be transparent. We want to be real with them, but not too real. Because if they know what I really think, or if they know how I really feel, probably wouldn't want to be around me, right? Or if they knew how I really thought and how I really feel, man, I would feel naked. I would feel ashamed. I would feel so vulnerable. I wouldn't want to be in their presence if they knew everything about me. But church, listen to me. That is not our God. God knows everything about you. And yet God loves you with a divine love. Is that not comforting? How comforting it is to know that we can go to God in weakness, that we don't have to be fake about who we are, that we don't have to stand in guilt and shame, that we no longer have to be vulnerable because of what Christ has done. Church, He knows you, and in love, He sends His Son to die on the cross for your sins. And on that cross, He who knows no sin becomes sin, so that you might become the righteousness of God. Church, He loves you, and in love, he covers your sin with righteousness. And he knows the deepest, darkest depths of your heart. Yet he still loves you with a fatherly love. 
Listen to what A.W. Tozer says about this. How unutterably sweet is the knowledge that our Heavenly Father knows us completely. No enemy can make an accusation stick. No forgotten skeleton can come out tumbling out of some hidden closet to embarrass us and expose our past. No unsuspected weakness in our characters can come to light to turn to God, to turn God away from us since he knew us utterly before we knew him and called us to him in the full knowledge of everything that was against us. Church, is that not encouraging? That God knows you? He knows you far greater than you could ever know yourself. He knows your weakness. He knows the darkest depths of your heart. And yet he still loves you. How comforting it is to know. But you know what? More than God just knowing who we are, he knows your circumstance. He knows your situation. He knows the pain that that causes. I, I, again, I know some of you are hurting. And, and I don't know what it feels like to go through your situation because I've never experienced it. I've experienced loss and pain but probably not in the same way you've experienced it. And it's encouraging to me that as I read through the scripture, that God not only knows you personally, but he knows your circumstance personally. It's encouraging to me that our God is not blind to it, that he knows it, he knows the pain that it causes. In Hebrews 4, 15, such a convicting passage for me. He says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. God is unlike me. I don't know your pain. I can't sympathize with your pain, but God can. He knows you, and he knows your situation. And you have a high priest that can sympathize with you, that could comfort you, that is there to care for you, to hold you, and to lead you. God's omniscience is comforting, but church, it is also convicting. I don't know if you've ever experienced this with your kid. You walk into a room and the moment you open the door, you see this. They just jump back. And you're like, what were you doing? What was I doing? Uh, yeah. What were you doing? Uh, I was doing nothing, dad. Looking at you guys. And the moment they, they say nothing and I probe a little bit deeper, I'm already like, all right, you're a little liar. Cute little liar. I don't believe anything you're about to say, right? Uh, I was cleaning my room. Really? Because you jumped away from that computer. Like, what were you really doing? You know what, church? It is convicting. Because while you might be able to pull the wool over my eyes, you cannot pull the wool over God's eyes. He sees all and he knows all. Hebrews 4.13 says this, No creature... No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him, of whom they must give an account. Church, there are no secret sins. There are no sins that God is unaware of. And every sin you will one day give an account for. And my prayer is that your faith and your hope would be in Jesus Christ. And on that day, you meet God as Father and not judge. Church, it is convicting that God sees all and he knows all. There are no secret sins. Look at the next stanza, verses 7 and on. 
it says this. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings in the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, you are there. Church, this is speak, speaking of God's omnipresence. And when we think about omnipresence, what it means is omni, all, present. That God is all present. And church, this has been super encouraging for me to just think through over the last month. That God is all present. And that God is fully present. This isn't like how I'm so often present, right? I come home, my day's been busy. I'm thinking about all the things that just unfolded. I'm thinking about all the things I have to do. My beautiful wife right there is talking to me. And I'm looking at her, probably even smiling, nodding my head. But it's just like, right? And at the end of it, in shame, I got to be like, babe, I didn't hear a word you just said. I'm so sorry. Can you say that again? Like I, I was present in body, but my mind was somewhere else. And that's not how we think of God's omnipresence. He is fully present. And that is to say that all that God is, is present here and now. Just stop and think about that. We've studied that God is holy. That means His holiness is present here and now. We've studied that God is love. That means His love is present here and now. We studied that God is unchanging. That means His immutability is present here and now. All that God is, is present here and now. Is that not incredible? Ephesians 4, 6 says this, that God is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You guys hear those prepositions? Homeschool kids, prepositions, you know what those are, right? Yeah, they're not in their heads. Adults are like, huh? Listen to the preposition. He is over all and he is through all and he is in all. That is to say that God is everywhere. Church, that is encouraging. That our God is everywhere, and He's not everywhere in a passive sense, but He is actively present, fully engaged at all times, unlike me. Colossians 1.17 says this, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the glue that holds all things together. It is His presence, His hand, and if for one second He were to pull that back, everything would slip out into chaos. God is actively involved in holding all things together by his presence. And again, David takes this theological truth of God's omnipresence and he makes it real. Look back at verse 7 again. It says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Church, this is a rhetorical question. The answer is nowhere. Nowhere you go can you flee from his presence. And we see that in verse eight. He says, if I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is the grave, you are there. If I take the wings in the morning, that means to go east, you are there. If I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, that is to go west, you are there. Church, no matter how high you go, no matter how low you go, no matter how far east or how far west, God's presence is there. You are there. 
And church, as, as I think about this, you know, I can't help but think I love to go out hiking. Jake remembers this. I'm like a little kid when I get out in wilderness. We went to the Sequoias. We parked at General Sherman. The sun was going down and I was sprinting as fast as I can because I wanted to see General Sherman. And if you don't know, General Sherman's like one of the biggest sequoias in the world. I mean, this thing stands 275 feet tall. It's 36 feet in width, and they estimate it's around 4.2 million pounds. I mean, this is a massive tree. And you stand there, it would take like something about 40 people to wrap around it. I mean, it's just so massive. You feel so tiny. You kind of stand at the base of it and you feel like a little ant in comparison to this giant tree. I mean, unlike this tree here. I love to go to Yosemite and stand at the base of El Capitan and see this sheer granite wall that rises 3,000 feet and just look up to the top of it. It causes so much awe in me, but at the same time, so much humility because I realize how small I am. Or you just stand out on the end of the ocean and you just look out at the sand or the beach and it just seems to go forever. You feel so small, especially if you're out there surfing and you're all by yourself, right? You feel really small and vulnerable. How much more is God? You see, each of these things has a beginning and an end. There is an end in the length of that tree. There is an end in that length of that ocean. There is an end to the height of the mountain. They have a limit to their size, a boundary to their presence, but God, there is no boundary to his presence. Church, there is no boundary to God's presence. He alone is in every part of the world, yet not limited by it, but beyond it. How much more should we stand in awe of the greatness of God who is in all and through all and over all? Church, Stephen Sharnock, he's a 17th century Puritan who writes real deeply on the attributes of God, he says this, we cannot conceive the vastness and glory of heaven and earth. Have you thought about that? We cannot conceive of the vastness and the glory of heaven and earth, much less that which is so great as to fill heaven and earth. Man, what a thought. That I can't comprehend how vast and great earth and heaven are much less my mind cannot comprehend the one who inhabits all of heaven and earth. God is vast. He is immeasurable. He alone is praiseworthy. But I want you to look back at this psalm because he points out two things about this amazing God who is everywhere present. And it is this, that this God is both transcendent and he is near. He is both high and lifted up and he is near. He says this in verse 8, if I send to the heaven, you are there. Church, you know this, that God sits on a throne that is in heaven. And one of my favorite texts in Isaiah 6, that his throne is high and lifted up. And his train of his robe fills the temple. Church, we see this vision of God sitting on a throne that's high and lifted up. And that is to say that God is transcendent, that God is unlike us. But we see in verse 10, says this, Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Guys, this God who dwells in heaven, who is transcendent, he is near. And his hand leads us. And his right hand protects us. He is near. That is what Isaiah tells us. 
For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. Listen, God dwells in a high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Church, God is transcendent, but he is also near to the contrite and lowly of heart. Is that not comforting? If you're thinking about this, and you're thinking, I can see how it's comforting, but how is it comforting here and now? Look at verse 11. It says this, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is dark to you. The night is bright as the day, and the darkness is as light with you. Church, that is to say, no matter how dark your situation is, it is as light to God. He sees clearly. And not only does he see your situation clearly, but he is near to you. He is leading you with his hand and protecting you with his right hand. Church, that is so comforting that no matter where we are in life, God has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. It reminds me of Daniel in the lion's den, right? In the midst of that trial, in the midst of the suffering, who was present with him? You can talk. God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they go into the fire. Who is present with them? God, absolutely. Church, that is the same for us. Psalm 23 says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because I'm bold and courageous? Because I'm strong and mighty? No. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. One of my favorite verses in Psalm 46.1 is, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help, a very present help in trouble. Church, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that when you are hurting, God has promised to never leave you or forsake you? Do you believe that God is fully present right now? Let me ask you this. If you did fully believe that and, and live in light of that truth, how might your life be different? What wouldn't you be doing that you are doing right now if you truly believe this? Man, there's a lot that I wouldn't be doing that I'm doing right now. Fear and anxiety, worry and doubt, pursuing my own fleshly desires. Right? What wouldn't you be doing that you're doing right now if you truly believe that God is present with you right now? Church, this is encouraging, but it's also convicting. Proverbs 15, 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and on the good. Keeping watch on the evil and on the good. You see, nothing can be far from his eyes because nothing is far from his presence. He is with you and he sees you. Jeremiah 23, verse 23 through 24 says this, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places that I cannot see him? Can you hide yourself that God cannot see you? The answer is no. There are no secret sins. Because God is omniscient, he sees you. And because God is omnipresent, he is with you in the midst of those secret sins. Which if you just thought about that, it has a level of wickedness, right? I asked my kids the other night, do you act better when daddy is present 
or when daddy is not present? Well, I act better when you're present. Yeah, why? Because you'd be ashamed to do some of the things you do when I'm not present. But church, God is always present. And yet we sin without a thought. How wicked and deceitful our hearts can be. Church, our God is always present. And you know what is so encouraging? That God is unlike me. He doesn't smite us in that moment, but in love and patience and long-suffering, He's enduring with us. And He's pleading with us to repent. It is the loving kindness of God that leads a man to repentance. Church, I would encourage you that if you have not yet, put your trust in Jesus Christ. Put your trust in the one who lived and died and resurrected. Church, I want to encourage you that if we truly believe that God was present in the midst of temptation, we would sin less, right? If we truly believe that God is in the midst of trouble, I know I would definitely worry less, be less anxious or fearful. I would be comforted and hopeful. Church, God is a very present help in time of trouble. His hand shall lead us and his right hand shall hold us. But there's more. Point number three, God creates in power, knowledge, and presence. Look at verse 13 through 18, and I'm just going to move fast through these. It says this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. You see the imagery there of knitting or crocheting? It's all the same to me. One hook, two hooks, I don't know. But it speaks of God being intimately involved in your creation. Intimately involved in forming you. That he is personable. That he is intimately creating you. And it says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you, for you know me when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven, woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed parts, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that you were formed of me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Church, every one of you here today, whether you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, whether you're a believer or not, every one of you were fearfully and wonderfully made. Every one of you were created by God in knowledge and in power and in presence, that He was intimately involved in your creation. Church, that is God's common grace to each one of us, right? As we stop and we think, there are no mistakes with our creation, that who we are is perfectly how God intended us to be. Nothing about us was a mistake. You were intimately formed by God. And more than that, he says, all of your days have been numbered and recorded in his book. That God knows your days. He records your days. And those days aren't outside of God's control. Those are by his sovereign and good and faithful hand. Church, there is more. Our God is transcendent. Our God is near. And this is so encouraging to our hearts. But there is more. God is present everywhere. But listen, He is specially and uniquely present with His people. This isn't in the text, but I want to remind you of this. In John 14, you remember John 14? Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. And as He does, He reminds them that He's going to leave. 
And as he leaves, he's going to send a helper. And that helper is to be the Spirit of God. And what he says is this, you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Christian, the God of the universe, he not only dwells with you, but he dwells in you. That all of who God is dwells in you. This is what Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says, right? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And Colossians 1.27 says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is this mystery? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 2 Corinthians 4, 6-20 says that we have in this, tre- in this jar of clay a treasure. Is it in your handouts? Let's see. Nope. All right, I'll read it. 2 Corinthians 4, 6-10 through 10, For God who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in this jar of clay. This felling jar of clay. Each and every year it's felling more and more, right? This felling jar of clay has inside of it an immeasurable treasure. And it says this, to show the surpassing power that belongs to God and not to us. For we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in us. Church, in this jar of clay, I have an immeasurable gift, and that is the presence of God. And it is the presence of God that comforts me. It is the presence of God that gives me a hope that does not, in the midst of trial, lead to despair lead to me being crushed, me being destroyed, but instead having hope. It is that treasure inside of me that gives me comfort. But listen, church, it is not that treasure alone that gives me comfort, but it is that treasure alone that gives me confidence. Listen, we so quickly find our identity in lesser things. Women, in our beauty, in our looks, girls, I tell my daughters this all the time, you're going to be tempted to find your identity in how you look. Men, you're going to be tempted to find your identity in what you do. You're going to be tempted to find your identity in the way in which you provide for your family financially. You're going to be tempted to find your identity in your relationships, in the friends that you have. There are so many things that we are tempted in finding our identity in. And yet what the Bible says is that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And if you are in Christ more than being fearfully and wonderfully made, the Bible says that the God who dwells everywhere dwells in you. What an identity. That that changes everything. Everything stands in bleak comparison to that identity. That I'm created by God, that I'm known by God, and that the God who dwells everywhere dwells in me gives me so much comfort and so much confidence. So Christian, how should we respond? Look at verse 19 through 24. And as you do, as I've been reading this psalm over and over again, I get to verse 19, I'm like, 
man, David just seems to go off. Like, I get everything up until this point. And then verse 19, read it. He says, oh, that you would slay the wicked. I'm like, what? That seems like a little bit out there. Like, he was so good, speaking of God's omniscience and omnipresence. And then he's like, and slay the wicked. In fact, when you think about this, he's praying for this. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O man of blood, depart from me. They speak, they speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. I read that and I'm like, what is going on? But you know what? As I've come to realize, this is such a proper response. Because if you notice, David is not upset that his enemies have come against him. David is not upset that his enemies are attacking him. What does he say about his enemies? He said, they speak evil against your name. The name that he has come to know, the name that is above every name. The God who is holy, the God who is love, the God who is omniscient, the God who is omnipresent. You see, he is having high and lifted up thoughts of who God is. And in light of this great God, man, man is but a grasshopper. And this grasshopper and arrogance and pride would attack your name, God, would seek to overthrow you, God. Man, slay the wicked. You see, he no longer has a fear of man because he sees all of humanity in light of God's greatness. Church, that is how we should respond. When we think deeply on the attributes of God, it should cause us to think more highly of God and lower of man. But not only does he look outward and think lower of humanity, look at what he says about himself. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me. Grievous towards who? Grievous towards God, right? He sees this holy God who loves him, who leads him and protects him. And he desires to not sin against that God, but to praise that God, to dwell with that God in peace and lead me in a way of everlasting. Church, behold your God. See the greatness of our God, that our God is holy, that our God is love, that our God is immutable, that God, our God is simple and omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient. And church, I would encourage you that as we sing to this God, let's sing loudly. But let's not only worship Him in song, but worship Him each and every day as we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And let's watch and pursue and see the reality of this amazing God. The reality of this amazing God breaking through our life circumstances, breaking through our emotions, and bringing a joy and a hope and a peace when all seems bleak. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are reminded that though our situation seems so big, that you are far greater and far bigger. We thank you that you are a God that holds all things together. We thank you that you are a God who is above all and through all and in all. And Father, we thank you that through your Son, Jesus Christ, you not only dwell with your people, but you dwell in your people. Father, it is so comforting to know that you dwell in us. And it is so convicting. I pray, Father, that your love and your patience and your kindness to us would move us to repent of sin. 
to put a greater faith and hope and trust in you. And that we would have a confidence that you in love, you see our weakness. You see our shortcomings. And that through your son, Jesus Christ, you love us still. And that on our worst days, you love us the same as our best days. Because your love towards us is not based on who we are, what we do. But it's based on who your son, Jesus, is and what he has done in our place. Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray all this in your son's Jesus' name. Amen.